Hello everyone, I hope you're all having a very relaxing and well-deserved break over this holiday season. For those of you who are still working, you are doing absolutely amazing and I hope you get to spend some time with your loved ones very soon. For today's video, I wanted to do something a little bit different from normal and take a look at some success stories from 2021, looking at three different cases that have been solved this year. So without further ado, let's delve into this episode. People say Ted Bundy didn't show any emotion. I showed emotion. The following episode is not suitable for those under the age of 13. Viewer discretion and parental guidance is advised. Do you want more Joshua Miles content? Do you want to hang out with me live, play chill games and discuss true crime with me? Then guess what? You can. Just jump over to twitch.tv forward slash Josh Miles and hit that cheeky little follow button where I stream every Monday, Wednesday, Friday and Sundays at 9pm UK time. We hang out on stream whenever a new true crime video goes live where we'll talk about the case that's in the new video and just kind of hang out. It's like Joshua Miles after hours. Follow me on Twitch. You can join our little community for free. You can find a link at the top of the description and in the pinned comments. Now back to the case. Friday the 5th of March 1959, Spokane, Washington, the United States. It had been a day that had been just as normal as any other day that had come before it, but for the family of nine-year-old Candace Rogers, though, it would be a Friday that would end with heartbreak and tragedy. Candace Rogers had spent that day at school, and after returning home and spending time playing with her dog, she ate an oatmeal cookie and left the house to go and sell campfire mints in her local area, in the west central neighbourhood of the city of Spokane. You see, Candace had actually been a bluebird, which is the name for the younger members of the Campfire Girls, like brownies for the Girl Scouts, the Campfire Girls of America being a youth development organisation formed in the early 1900s. Today, the Campfire Girls of America organisation is known as simply Campfire, and is now gender inclusive, though in the 1950s its primary focus was getting girls out in nature through camping and outdoor activities. Candice, known to family and friends as Candy, had set out that early evening to sell mints for the Campfire Girls of America to fundraise for her local group, though when Candy failed to return back home by the time the sun had set that evening, Candy's family grew worried. Her grandfather, mother, friends and neighbours immediately set out to try to find the missing nine-year-old, and soon members of the local community in Spokane joined the search efforts. By the time the late evening came around, the concern for Candy's well-being had grown exponentially, and before long, every available police officer, alongside members of the public, joined in the search for the missing girl. Naturally, due to it being the 1950s, GPS, mobile phones, security cameras and the like were not technology that the police could use to try to find Candy, as they quite simply didn't exist, and the authorities, sadly, had very little to go on in their search efforts. 
Investigators did uncover boxes of campfire mints that they believed to have been the ones that Candy had been selling, scattered along Patet's Drive in Spokane, which was a road that headed north away from West Central, the area where Candy had been selling the mints. This was the only lead that the authorities had to go on, and the only evidence that could provide the authorities with any clues as to where Candy had gone, despite the fact that this evidence couldn't be conclusively proven to have belonged to the nine-year-old girl. The community of Spokane were in shock, and joined together to support Candy's family in every way possible. They united together in the days that followed Candy's disappearance, searching desperately for that one piece of evidence that could lead to finding Candy. A command post was set up at what is now the intersection of Petit Drive and the TJ Manac Bridge, and around 1,200 volunteers gathered to search the surrounding areas. Several different organisations, including the US Air Force, actually assisted in the search for Candy, with the Air Force using a helicopter to provide a bird's eye view of the search area. Though, tragically, in the midst of the search for the missing nine-year-old girl, a US Air Force Sikorsky H-19 helicopter collided with high-tension power lines and crashed into the Spokane River. This crash, heartbreakingly, took the lives of Airman Malise D. Ray, Sergeant William A. McDonnell, and Lieutenant Kenneth G. Fortek, all men perishing selflessly during the search for Candy Rogers. Two members of the crew on that helicopter did in fact survive the crash, and after they had recovered in hospital, they rejoined the search efforts. And the search efforts did continue for weeks, everyone desperately trying to find anything that could lead investigators to Candy. Saturday the 21st of March 1959, a day that the authorities would finally make a breakthrough in the case, though it would be a breakthrough that would be tragic. Two airmen from Fairchild had been out hunting in the wooded area close to Old Trails Road, which was located about seven miles away from Candy's home. The two airmen stumbled across a pair of girls' shoes within the woods while they had been hunting, and when they returned back to base, they decided to report their findings as they were unsure whether the shoes could be related to the missing nine-year-old girl Candy. The following morning, at daybreak, a search party descended on the area in the woods where the two men had found the girls' shoes, and only minutes later, this search party would find human remains. These remains were discovered buried under what is described as a shallow layer of brush and pine needles, and they were sadly confirmed to have been the remains of missing nine-year-old Candice Rogers. Investigators painstakingly and meticulously searched the entire woodland and combed through thousands of tips and leads. However, the authorities found nothing that could lead them to a suspect. It's important to note that in 1959, the forensic sciences and testing technology was wildly different from the advanced techniques used today, and DNA evidence was something only discussed in academia and wouldn't be used in any criminal cases for decades. And so, with no way of knowing how later forensic technologies would develop, the investigators still collected evidence using procedures to prevent contamination in the hopes that perhaps, in the future, it may be used to find justice. This DNA evidence was preserved so well that the DNA could be extrapolated 62 years after the murder. The case of Candy Rogers quickly grew cold, following the discovery of her remains, with no leads being found, and justice for her family becoming a hopeful dream. 
In early 2021, this year, the Spokane Police Department's investigators that worked with forensic experts found out about a new state-of-the-art DNA testing method offered by a laboratory in Texas. Let's take a look at the press release published by the Spokane Police Department concerning this new testing method and how they used it. Quote, A sample of semen collected from Candy's clothing was provided to that lab. The specimen was inputted into a genealogy database, which narrowed potential matches down to three brothers. One of the possible matches was John Ray Hoff. Hoff was the only one of the three brothers who had offspring. Finally, the case had a lead. Something that could lead the detectives to Candy's killer. Something that could provide her family with justice after all these years though the investigators still had to find their suspect. They contacted the daughter of John Rain Hoff, and after she was informed of the investigation, she immediately dropped everything and went straight away to meet with the detectives, determined to help in any way that she could. The authorities asked John's daughter to submit a DNA sample so that they could analyse it and compare it against the specimen that had been taken more than six decades ago. And when the results came back, it showed that the DNA of John's daughter was 2.9 million times more likely to have been related to the recovered specimen than the general population. This was significant evidence for the investigation into Candy's murder, though the detectives found themselves faced with a difficult question. How certain is certain enough? Let's take another look at the press release published by the Spokane Police Department regarding this case. Quote, John Rainhoff was deceased, and therefore there would be no criminal trial, no adversarial process where each side presents evidence. All the information gleaned would come from this investigation, and detectives decided they had an obligation to be as certain as possible. With indications John Rainhoff was the perpetrator, Spokane Police Department investigators requested and were granted a warrant allowing them to exhume the body of Hoff and collect sample DNA. The results showed a match between John Ray Hoff and the semen specimen collected from Candy, with a probability threshold indicating it was 75 quintillion, which is 18 zeros, times more likely the sample came from John Ray Hoff than an unrelated person chosen at random from the general population. This conclusively indicated that the DNA sample collected from Candy's remains had been that of John Ray Hoff. And coupling this with corroborating evidence, the investigators were finally able to conclude that John Ray Hoff had been responsible for the rape and murder of nine-year-old Candy Rogers. At the time of Candy's murder, John Ray Hoff had been 20 years old and had grown up in the city of Spokane, growing up about a mile away from where Candy had lived. At the age of 17, John enlisted in the army and had been stationed at various different missile sites surrounding Fairchild Air Force Base. It's interesting to note that in 1961, two years after Candy had been murdered, John was actually convicted of assault in the second degree, with the intent to rob. You see, John had assaulted a woman, forcibly tore her clothes from her, tied her up using those clothes, strangled her, and then fled the scene. The woman that had been victimised in this attack actually survived, and it saw John spending six months in prison for the crimes. Just six months. Which is ridiculous. Further to this, due to this conviction, John was declared a deserter from the army and was discharged. He went on to work as a door-to-door -door salesman and worked at a lumberyard following the dishonourable discharge from the military. In 1970, when John was 31 years old, John ended his life. The press release by the Spokane Police Department goes on to state, quote, 
The case resonated with the department and the community for decades. When asked to estimate how many hours had been spent investigating Candy's case, Sergeant Zach Stormont replied, quote, This isn't measured in hours, this is measured in careers. It took the determination of a community, the evolution of technology, and the perseverance of generations of detectives to finally solve the mystery surrounding the horrific killing of Candy Rogers. 62 years later, there is finally some semblance of closure. On Wednesday the 23rd of December 1987, Jeanette Brochu went on a night out for drinks with her friends in Waterville, Maine, the United States. The night out had been one full of fun and new memories for Janet and her friends, though it would end in panic, heartbreak and pain. At some point during the night out, Janet found herself separated from her group of friends, and that would be the last time she would be seen by her friends alive. Janet did disappear that night, though she was seen by a witness leaving the nightclub at about midnight in the company of two unknown men. Three months later, the unclothed remains of Janet Brochu would be found in the Sebastocook River in Pittsfield. Janet had been born in 1967 and had been adopted by her parents Geraldine and Albert Brochu, who she lived with her entire life on Cushman Road in Winslow. She had travelled from her parents' house to T. Woody's, which was a popular nightclub on the concourse in Waterville, on that fateful evening. Janet had left her family home at about 6pm and told her mother that she was going to cash a cheque before heading on to McDonald's. Jeanette was described as being 5 foot 6 inches tall and as being someone who suffered from a severe case of diabetes, which saw her needing insulin injections twice daily. She had worked as a dietary assistant at her local medical centre in the year and a half leading up to her disappearance and subsequent murder. A lot of the details surrounding the timeline of events on the night Janet went missing are hard to come by. After all, CCTV surveillance had not been something used at the time, so the authorities only had witness testimony to provide them with any leads. What we do know, though, is that Janet had drunk alcohol at the nightclub that night, but had been told to leave after the bar staff had asked her for identification and realised that she had been underage. It's then said that Janet left the bar with those two unknown men. Not long after Janet and the two men had left the nightclub, one of the men returned to the bar to pick up Janet's pocketbook, which she must have left. This man told the bar staff that, quote, he'd take care of her. Janet would not be seen again. Once Janet's friends and family realised that she had gone missing, they reported it to the authorities who issued a coast-to-coast -coast police alert for the missing 20-year-old. Just over a week later, in January of 1988, the authorities managed to track down one of the men that had left the nightclub with Janet. When the police spoke with this man, he told them that Janet had gone to a bowling centre prior to going to the nightclub with a group of her friends, which was where she had met this man and the other man. Both of these two men were subsequently identified to have been Jerry and Lou. Those names were announced by the authorities, however they were codenames for the actual two men to protect their identities at the time. Both of these men told the authorities that they had left the nightclub in separate cars that night, without Janet. 
Jerry was determined to have been the last person to have seen Janet alive, and he told the authorities that she had been standing in the parking lot outside of the nightclub when he had left. And with that, what appeared to be the most promising lead in the case came to an end. As January of 1988 was drawing to a close, the search efforts for Janet had expanded to include the Maine State Police and the Maine Attorney General's office. Though, sadly, the hope that Janet would be found safe and well would be shattered when on the 19th of March 1988, about three months after she had gone missing, a horrific discovery was made. Jeanette Brochu's naked body was recovered from the Sebastocook River in Pittsfield. Through the use of dental records and jewellery, a positive identification of the remains was made. Jeanette's body had been found in the early hours of the morning, about half a mile from the town she'd gone missing from, by a river dam owner who went by the name of Christopher Anthony. The remains had been partially frozen and covered in algae, and had washed up against a metal grate that protected hydropower generators in the dam, which was why the river dam owner had been the first to discover the remains during his routine checks of the dam. In April of 1988, police divers searched the riverbed in an attempt to locate any of Jeanette's personal belongings, though their search efforts were fruitless. Five months later, history would repeat itself and tragedy would strike again. Another woman, who was called Geraldine Finn, would vanish from a nightclub in Waterville, and just like with Janet, Geraldine would be found tragically dead. Geraldine had been 23 years old at the time of her disappearance, and had last been seen on the 9th of August 1988, leaving the Pete and Larry's lounge of what was then the Holiday Inn in Waterville. And sadly, five days after going missing, Geraldine's remains were discovered in a shallow grave in a wooded area near Skohegan, which was the town that Geraldine was from. Investigators were quick to speak with Geraldine's friends, and they told them that they had last seen Geraldine leaving the nightclub in a blue Chevrolet Blazer that was being driven by 29-year-old Gerald Goodale. Gerald had lived on Water Street in Waterville's South End with his parents at the time, and he was described as being combative and as somebody who had spent all their time tinkering with cars behind his parents' home. On 15th of August 1988, Gerald Goodale was arrested and charged with the murder of Geraldine Finn. Just like with Janet, Geraldine had left her pocketbook in the nightclub when she had left at about 11pm, and due to this they had returned to the nightclub to collect this pocketbook, and in more similarities she also worked in the healthcare sector. The trial against Gerald lasted for about five days, and by the end the jury found Gerald guilty of murder in the first degree in Geraldine's case. He received a sentence of 75 years imprisonment on the 9th of June 1989. Gerald told the courtroom, quote, I am truly sorry. It wasn't no murder, it was an accident. The judge that oversaw the trial against Gerald described him as, quote, a remorseless, predatory and dangerous person, and said that the sentence was the minimum necessary with good time to protect society from this man for the rest of his productive life. It's important to note that on the same day as Gerald's sentencing, the local press ran a story with the headline, Questions Over Brochu Death Resurface. This article discussed the idea that the case of Janet Brochu might be linked to the now convicted Gerald Goodale. 
According to this article, the authorities had actually brought Gerald in for questioning on at least two different occasions after Janet's body had been recovered, and his truck had even been searched, though he had never been charged in connection to her case. That was until the 14th of May earlier this year in 2021. Gerald Goodale, who was 61 years old at the time, was arrested in connection to the murder of Janet after new evidence emerged and was presented to a grand jury. The police released the following statements regarding his arrest, quote, This case represents years of combined work by state, local and county investigators, prosecutors and skilled scientists who never relented in their pursuit for truth and for justice for this victim, her family and friends. The indictment for Gerald's arrest states that the grand jury charges that Gerald, quote, did intentionally or knowingly cause the death of Janet Brochu, or did engage in conduct which manifested a depraved indifference to the value of human life and which, in fact, caused the death of Janet Brochu, all in violation of law. Gerald is currently being held without bail as he continues to serve his previous murder sentence, though unfortunately court proceedings have been postponed due to the current pandemic, with no future dates being set as of this video being published. The nature of the new evidence that saw the authorities arresting him and charging him connected to Janet's case has not yet been disclosed to the public. We can only hope that finally justice can be found for Jeanette Brochu's family. Sadly, her mother Geraldine passed away in 2015 at the age of 87, and her father Albert passed away earlier this year in January of 2021 at home at the age of 91, both still waiting for justice to be found in the murder of their only daughter. The third and final case that we were going to be discussing, we've unfortunately had to cut from the episode due to recent further developments in the legal proceedings of the case, and so we didn't wish to impede on the case's progress until further information has come to light. I filmed the introduction to this video a few days back, and when I learned of the case's developments that we had planned, I knew I couldn't include it in this video until the legal proceedings have settled. But fear not, for we shall be, instead, taking a look at the Kiss and Kill Murders case, which we discussed on my Twitch stream last Friday. I've edited the recordings of the stream down to match the style of this video, and if you're interested in joining me deep diving into these cases every single Friday at 6pm UK time for several hours, then be sure to follow me over on twitch.tv forward slash Josh Miles. It's currently Christmas Day as I record this edit, so I hope everyone has had a wonderful holiday season. And with all that being said, let's take a look at the case of the Kiss and Kill murders. Hi Second Channel, it's Joshua Miles here. Welcome to the second instalment of our Exploring a Case on Twitch. Going through it with everybody in our Twitch chat, going through a case that I probably wouldn't cover on my main channel, but would still like to touch on. So if you like that kind of thing and you want to see more, then make sure to go to twitch.tv slash joshmiles, where you can join us every Friday at 6pm UK time, where we'll go through a case together or you can watch it here on my second channel the vod the edited version i know the first episode which is on my main channel was i didn't have all the i didn't like separate my webcam 
or like the what I was showing on screen but hopefully this time it will work so basically what we're doing in these streams is we're basically doing what I would do if I'm researching a case so we're going to go find sources we're going to delve in we're going to find get to the bottom of what happened all these cases are sent in to me by the way to requestthecase.com so if you have a case suggestion feel free to send it there or if you have a suggestion for stream you can leave one in the chat too this case is one that one of my writers picked out and it is called the kiss and kill murders let's take a look place where i always start is the wikipedia if there is one is it always gives a good overview of the case may not be 100 factual there may be some inconsistencies but usually it's a really good way to start this case is from 1961 let's go over the brief introduction they have on this wikipedia kiss and kill refers to the 20th of march 1961 homicide of betty williams a teenager from Odessa, Texas, United States. Betty Williams was killed by her ex-boyfriend, John Mac Herring, who was born on the 23rd of September, 1943, at her own request in Winkler County, Texas. Now, John was tried and actually acquitted for the killing after his lawyers argued that he had temporary insanity. Now, that is very, very interesting. Very interesting to me, um, simply because the temporary insanity legal defense within itself is such a difficult one for a defense team to pull off and to convince a jury so it's gonna be really interesting to take a look and see what actually happened in trial but what i like to do when i first start is i do like to take a look and see if we can find out more information about our victims because it is i have the the honor of telling you guys the story the lives the everything about the victim if that makes sense i have I, I have the honor of telling you guys about what they what their dreams were their aspirations their passions and i think that's something that's really important to focus on i'm not a big fan of cases or content that covers true crime in a way where it kind of puts the victims to one side this is from the 23rd of march 1961 which is a few days after homicide takes place okay a goodbye kiss a roaring blast from a 12 gauge shotgun and a watery grave for a pretty 17 year old girl led to filing murder charges late wednesday against an Dacer high school boy who said he killed his former girlfriend because quote she asked me to the slaying suspect mac herring who was 17 years old led lawmen to a stock pond in rough ranch county about three miles northwest of odessa he waded into the murky water and returned to the shore with the body of Elizabeth, otherwise known as Betty, clad in shorty pajamas and a duster. A few moments earlier, Herring had told officers about shooting his Odessa high school classmates and dumping the body in the muddy water with about 50 pounds of lead tied to her waist. Herring told lawmen and reporters he shot and killed Betty at the girl's own request. Now that's very interesting. So this is an article published in 2006 by Pamela Koloff. I'm just going to go through this article as well. When football season ended and there was nothing much to do on Friday nights except drink beer and stare up at the wide open sky, teenagers used to park their pickups across the streets from Odessa High School and wait to see the ghost they called Betty. According to legend, she would appear at the windows of the school auditorium at midnight, provided that students flashed their headlights three times or honked their horn and called out her name. The real Betty, it was said, had attended Odessa High decades before and had acted in a number of plays on the auditorium stage. The facts of her death have been muddled with time, and each story was as apocryphal as the last. 
She'd fallen off a ladder in the auditorium and broken her neck, students said. She had hanged herself in the theatre. A boyfriend, who was a varsity football player, had shot her on stage during a play. So many teenagers made the late-night pilgrimage to see Betty that the high school deemed it prudent to paint over the windows of the school auditorium. During a later renovation, its facade was covered with bricks. The stories of Betty never went away. Students still talk of quite a presence in the auditorium, one that is to blame for a long list of strange occurrences, from flickering lights and noises that cannot be explained, to objects that appear to move on their own. Some claim to have seen her pacing the balcony or heard her footsteps behind them, only to find no one there. Rumours have flourished that a coach who knew the real Betty is visited by her on occasion in the field house and that a former vice principal who once caught a glimpse of her after hours was so spooked by the encounter that he refused to be in the school again by himself. Quote, if I hear her name on a daily basis, says theatre arts teacher Carl Moore, who had taught at Odessa High for four years, whenever something unexplained happens, a book falls on the floor in my classroom or the light board goes out during a technical rehearsal, someone always jokes, it's Betty. What may be nothing more than just a ghost story can also be seen as something more complicated a metaphor, perhaps, for the way that one crime has lodged uneasily in Odessa's collective memory. The teenagers who pass down stories about Betty are too young to remember the kiss and kill murder, as it was christened by the press in 1961, but it was the most sensational crime in West Texas in its day. The notoriety of the case has long since faded, yet 45 years later, something lingers. When Ronnie White, who graduated from Odessa High the year that the murder took place, returned to his alma mater to teach history in 1978, he was astonished to hear students talking about the former drama student named Betty, whose spirit supposedly haunted the auditorium, and the popular football player who had had a hand in her killing. Quote, I couldn't believe what I was hearing, he says. I thought, good lord, they must be talking about Betty Williams. Okay, and it looks here that there is a note, maybe from a diary um, or a letter of sorts, and it looks like it's, it's from Betty. So this is dated the 23rd of September 1960, which is prior to the murder. Well, I finally made the rank of senior and I can hardly believe it. I really don't feel much different. We get our senior rings Wednesday. I'll be glad. It sure does feel funny to be on the top of everything looking down. It seems strange to think that this is really all of high school. Next year? We had our pictures made last week. If they turn out halfway decent, I'll send you one. Send me another picture if you have it. Well, the bell is about to ring, so I'll write more later. Love, Betty. What most people remember about Betty Williams is that they hardly noticed her at all. She lived in a small, well-worn frame house on an unpaved street not far from the oil fields west of town, where gas flares burned and drilling rig lights illuminated the desert at night. Her father John was a carpenter who had difficulty finding steady work, and her mother Mary had taken a job at J.C. Penney to help make ends meet. A strict Baptist, her father only preached to Betty about sin and eternal damnation, and on more than one Sunday morning, he prayed that she might learn to be a more obedient daughter. At 17, Betty was pretty in an unremarkable way, 
with sandy blonde hair that brushed her shoulders and big expressive blue eyes that conveyed sincerity when talking to authority figures but were alive with irreverence. Betty disdained conformity and reserved particular contempt for the girls with matching sweater sets and saddle shoes who seemed to look right through her. She fancied herself an intellectual and put down her opinions on everything from boys to religion in dozens of letters and notes that she passed in study hall. She read Jack Kerouac's On the Road and the poetry of Allen Ginsberg, and she listened to the records of Lenny Bruce's stand-up routines in which he ra rallied against, or railed against rather, racism and skewered middle-class hypocrisy. She too liked to get a rise out of people and she thrived on attention. Whether she got it by arriving at Tommy's drive-in dressed entirely in black but wearing white lipstick or in jeans and a t-shirt under which she didn't bother to put on a bra. She freely expressed opinions that went against the grain, like her belief that segregation was unjust and that black people should not have to attend a separate high school across the railroad tracks. In bedrock conservative blue-collar Odessa, where the John Birch Society's crusade against communism and other quote un-American influences had struck a chord, she was seen as an oddball. Quote, most people do not understand me, Betty wrote to a friend in her senior year. There are people willing to be my friends, but mostly they are either too ignorant to understand why I'm like I am, and consequently offer my mind no challenge, or they haven't the wits to match mine. At the top of Odessa's high school rigid social hierarchy were the quote, cashmere girls, as one alumna called them. The girls with perfect complexions from West Odessa's better neighbourhoods, who were perennially voted most popular, best personality, and class favourite. At football games, they sat in the stands wearing the ultimate status symbol, their boyfriend's letter jackets. They belonged to the informal societies called Tri-High Y Clubs, Capri, Sorella, and Amake, which cherry-picked the most popular high school girls. Betty was hardly Tri-High Y material in the high school pecking order. Her classmates remember her as a nobody, a non-entity, and someone on the outside looking in. But while she struck an anti-establishment pose, the rejection she felt from the other girls still stung. Quote, Betty wanted to be liked, says her first cousin Shelton Williams, whose memoir Washed in the Blood chronicles his coming of age in Odessa through the prism of Betty's murder. Quote, she wanted what we all wanted, to be totally unique while being completely accepted. I think it's only fair that everybody, we're a social race, we're a social species. I think everybody wants to be accepted within society to some extent. So it is totally understandable that the rejection she might have felt from this group or from other girls or other people in her school would have pained her. In a place where fun on a Saturday night might mean deciding to take only right turns while cruising around town, Betty dreamed of her escape. She hoped to one day become an actress, and in her bedroom, where movie posters and playbills covered the walls, she devoured magazines like the Hollywood scandal sheet Confidential. She loved the thrill of the spotlight and was gifted enough that she landed parts in three school plays when she was just a sophomore. During her junior year, when the speech team performed the balcony scene from Romeo and Juliet at the University Interscholastic League competition, Betty played the doomed, lovesick heroine. But as desperately as she wanted to propel herself out of Odessa, she was fatalistic about the future. The oldest of four children, she knew that her parents could not afford to send her away to college, and her part-time job at Woolworths barely paid enough to finance any kind of getaway. 
While she aspired to one day appear on the Broadway stage, in the meantime, she planned to live at home after graduation and attend Odessa College just up the street. Some nights, Betty would slip out to the back door after her parents had gone to bed and walk the four blocks to Tommy's drive-in, where there were always boys to talk to. Plenty of girls were flirts, but few of them were as assertive as Betty. She made no secrets of the fact that she was not a prude and that she was willing to prove it. At the end of an evening at Tommy's, it was not unusual for her to end up parked in a secluded spot somewhere with a football player. While boys were free to do as they pleased, quote, good girls were expected to obey an unexpected, an unspoken code of conduct. Quote, if a girl had a steady boyfriend, then she could have sex as long as she didn't advertise it, says Jean Smith Kicker, a Capri who was a year below Betty. Quote, but if she did it with someone who wasn't her boyfriend, then she was a pariah. Betty chose to dis disregard the rules, and if she had earned herself a reputation, she hardly seemed to care. Eisenhower had been president during most of our years of growing up, and kids were kept on a very short leash, remembers classmate Dixon Bowles. You've, you got the feeling with Betty that she was always straining against that leash, even when it choked her. Maybe especially when it choked her. Hmm. So here is another letter, I believe, from Betty. We know that she wrote numerous letters and notes. So this is to Mac, who we know is ultimately the person that will murder her um, in this case. So let's read. Mac, well, I guess you accomplished what you set out to do. You hurt me more than you'll ever know. When you handed me that note this morning, you virtually changed the course of my life. I don't know what I expected the note to say, but not that. I'll not waste time saying that I didn't deserve it because I guess I did. I've never been so hurt in my life and I guess you'll know it was the jilt I needed to get me back on the straight and narrow. I've done a lot of things I know that were bad and cheap, but I swear before God that I didn't mean them to be like that. I was just showing off. I know it's much too late with you, Mac, but I swear that another boy won't get the chance to say what you said to me. You've made me realise that instead of being smart and sophisticated like I thought, I was only being cheap and ugly and whorish. Forgive me for writing this late, this last note, and thank you for reading it, and not trouble you again, and Mac, I haven't forgotten the good times we had. I really have enjoyed knowing you, and I'm awfully sorry that it had to end this way. Best of luck with your steady girlfriend, I hope she's the best, Betty. Yes, when you think of me, try to think of the good times we had, and not this. I wonder what this note that she mentions reads, whether we get to see it. Okay, I think this is now going to go into Mac Herring and who he was. Mac Herring was not one of the elite football players at Odessa High School on whose shoulders rested the hopes for the 1960 season. As a back of the Broncos and one of the average abilities, he was just another guy on the team. Tall and good looking with jet black hair that framed a long contemplative face. Mac was a guy's guy, his classmates remember, who was quiet and self-contained. Notice how his classmates talk about Mac, who is the murderer. And then how they talk about Betty, the victim. It's very interesting to me to see that mentality. Sam says the author is much more respectful in talking about him too. I agree. The oldest son of a homemaker and a World War II veteran who owned an electrical contracting business, Matt grew up in the solidly middle-class neighborhood that was home to many of his teammates and the try-high white girls they dated. An avid hunter, he, he was happiest when he could spend a few days bagging dove or quail on his father's hunting lease north of town, or ramble around the oil fields with his .22, thinking Jack Rabbits. Quote, if Mac wounded an animal when we went hunting, he would pursue it and dispatch it, says Larry Francel, 
who grew up across the alley from him. A lot of kids were cruel, they would shoot something and watch it hobble off, but Mac was different. He didn't like to see things suffer. If he was going to go out there to hunt, he was going to kill. The way that this author is cherry-picking quotes and cherry-picking the way that they speak about Mac so interesting to me. It's so contrasting to how she's spoken about the victim. Although Mac was near the top of the high school cast system and Betty was at the bottom, they managed to strike up a friendship when she was a junior and he was a sophomore. Betty thought she sensed in him a kindred spirit. He seemed more sensitive than the other boys she knew, and she thought there was something lonely and romantic about him. In the summer of 1960, they started dating, and Betty wondered if she might be falling in love. Mac, she told friends, really listened to her. But Mac was careful to be discreet at the time, about the time they spent together. He never took Betty to his neighbour Carol McCutcheon's house, where the in-crowd gathered for dance parties and rounds of spin the bottle. He never gave her his lesser jacket or brought her home to meet his parents. Perhaps because he had wounded her pride, or maybe just to make him jealous, Betty tried to even the score one night when she parked with one of his best friends, a popular football player who had been voted the most handsome in his class. The stunt, so the stunt soured Mac on the relationship, and by the fall, he had broken things off and started going steady with a pretty redhead in Amake. Quote, I've never been so humiliated and torn to pieces as I am now, Betty wrote to a friend. I feel so lonely and deserted. I don't care what happens now or ever. This is pure hell. Betty was crushed to discover that fall that Odisa's high, Odisa High's new drama teacher did not see much promise in her and had relegated her to the role of stage manager for the spring production of Maxwell Anderson's Winter Set, a gloomy 1935 play based loosely on the Sacco Vanzetti case. Worse, she learned that Mac would be playing one of Winterset's lead roles, a remorseless killer named Troc Estrella. Still reeling from their breakup and depressed at the prospect of not being cast in a single play her senior year, Betty began to feel hopeless. Mac was, quote, the one, and without him, life wasn't worth living. Quote, she said she wanted to die if she couldn't be with Mac, remembers her cousin Shelton, who was a year her junior at, o at Odessa's Permian High School. Quote, she told me, I have to get him back. Her mood turned darker after her father rummaged through her dresser drawers looking for evidence of her disobedience. Distraught, Betty confided in a friend that he had found her diary. Oh my god. If you ever find your kid's diary, do not read that. Respect. Respect and boundaries. That's super personal. In which she had detailed her experiences with boys. Though she had pleaded with her father to believe her when she swore to him that she had changed, he could not be convinced. Quote, Betty said that the situation at home was bad, says the friend who asked not to be named. I wanted to help, but I didn't know what to do. I was 16 years old. By the winter, Betty had started telling friends that she would be better off dead. Okay, so this is um, clearly going to be going into some very heavy discussions and i do want to quickly point out that if um you or anyone you know is struggling with any of the topics that we talk about you just head on over to my channel um you can find always in the bottom um in the description of a video you can always find a um a link and this will give you access to hotlines and organizations in numerous different countries um that can help um if you need counselling or you need or you're in a crisis or you just need to speak to someone please do not hesitate to reach out to any of these organizations quote heaven must be a ni nice place she told junior howard sellers 
She claims to have half-heartedly tried to unalive herself by taking four aspirin. She, boosted, she boasted of climbing up to the auditorium rafters, intending to throw herself onto the stage below, only to find that she lacked the courage. Betty, who had always enjoyed being outrageous, talks about wanting to die to whoever would listen, but the only reaction she was able to provoke was a few eye rolls. The response was always the same. There goes Betty again, trying to be the centre of attention. Even when she began acting more erratically during rehearsals for Winterset, her peers wrote off her overwrought confessions about wanting to die as, as nothing more than a, a theatre girl's high school histrionics. She informed at least five students working on the play that she wanted to unalive herself, but didn't have the nerve. Would they be willing to do it for her, she asked. Quote, no, I don't think I will, senior Mike Ware said, passing it off as a joke. A sophomore, Jim Mercer, also deflected the invitation. Quote, I charge for my services, he kidded, quoting her an impossibly high price. At the time when Betty felt marginalised by those around her and forsaken by the one boy she loved, death seemed to hold its own allure. Or was she just acting, pushing the boundaries in another bid to catch Mac's attention? One night, he gave her and Howard a ride home from rehearsal and she made the request of him. Would he be willing to kill her? She would hold the gun to her head, she said, while he pulled the trigger. Mac laughed off at the absurdity of the idea and Betty laughed with him. She even went as far as to write out a, wisely, a wildly melodramatic note, clearing him of culpability where he were he to be apprehended for the murder, a note that Howard would later say had seemed like a joke. The next afternoon during rehearsal, Betty pulled Mac into the prop room backstage. She was miserable, she told him, and she wanted to die. Again, we are discussing some very heavy topics right now. Please do reach out to any charities or hotlines if anything we're talking about does affect you. It was the week before Winterset was scheduled to premiere, and students were busy running their lines and painting the set as they readied for the final dress rehearsal. In the middle of the chaos, Betty spotted Mike. Quote, it's been nice knowing you, she said. What do you mean, he asked. I finally talked Mac into killing me, she said. Mike shrugged, I'll send you roses. Betty wrote a lot of notes and a lot of letters, so this would be an extract from a note or a letter. I'm consumed with burning emptiness and loneliness that has taken charge of me, body and soul. I have to fight it. If, I'm to, if I am to live, I have to fight or else it will pull me down, down, down into that thankless pit of fear, pain and agonised loneliness. Two days later, on March 22nd, 1961, the Odessa Police Department received a frantic phone call from Mary Williams, who reported that her daughter was missing. One by one, Betty's friends were called into the principal's office, where they were asked to tell what they knew. Ike Nail, a popular junior who had taken Betty home from rehearsal the previous evening, recounted a story that interested investigators. When he had dropped Betty off at 10 o'clock, he said that she had suggested that he return in half an hour and meet her in the alley behind her house. As promised, at 10.30, Betty snuck out the back door and slipped into his car. The two teenagers had parked in the alley for a while, but they had been startled to see headlights coming towards them. Betty immediately recognised the approaching car as Max. Quote, oh my god. I didn't think he'd come, she had exclaimed. Ike had been certain Betty was only joking when she'd remarked earlier in the evening that Mac had promised to kill her, so certain that he did not try to stop her when she climbed into Mac's jeep. As she turned to go, she said to Ike, quote, I've got to call his bluff, even if he kills me. Odessa Police Youth Officer Bobby McAplin sat Mac down to answer a few questions. The football player told a plausible enough story, he had dropped Betty off outside her parents' house at midnight and had not seen her since. 
but inconsistencies in his accounts led McCaplin to believe that the 17-year-old knew more than he was letting on. Had he left Betty at the front door or the back? McCaplin inquired. The front door, Mac answered. No, he hadn't waited to see that she'd gotten inside safely. His answer struck McCaplin as peculiar. The officer knew that Betty had been dressed for bed when she had slipped out of the house that night. According to Ike, she had been wearing only pale pink shorty pyjamas and a blue and white striped duster. Not the kind of clothes a boy would leave a girl standing in on her front porch at midnight. McCaplin also felt sure that Betty would not have wanted to sneak back into the house through the front door. Mac was brought down to the police station for further questioning and 45 minutes later, he broke down. Betty had begged him to kill her, he told McCaplin. While all he had done was carry out her wishes. He claimed to have committed the crime with a 12-gauge shotgun that Betty herself had picked out. Mac led officers to his father's hunting lease, 26 miles northwest of the town, on a lonely piece of scribbland studded with pump jacks. They turned off the highway onto a winding dirt road and continued on until Mac directed them to stop. He showed them where his and Betty's footprints, his large, her small, led down a steep incline into a stock tank. Besides the water, the ground was splattered with blood. In a flat monotone, Mac told investigators that he had shot Betty next to the stock tank, weighed her down, and submerged her body. Unsure of the exact location of the body in the tank, officers asked Mac if he would retrieve it. He stripped off his red and white varsity letter jacket, sports shirt, loafers, blue jeans and socks, and waded into the water until it came up to his chest. The assembled group of lawmen fell silent. When he reached the centre, Mac oriented himself by looking at the, the mesquite trees on either side. Then he dove under the water and came back up. He began wading back towards land, dragging an object that appeared to be very heavy. When he was near the water's edge, Odessa police detective Fred Johnson could see that he was holding a pair of human feet. Johnson advised him to leave the body, which was still clad in pale pink pyjamas, in the water. Around Betty's waist were tied two lead weights. She'd been partially decapitated by a single shotgun blast to the head. Quote, it didn't move him when he pulled her body out of the water or when he said that he'd put a shotgun to her, to her head, remembered retired highway patrolman E.C. Locklear. It was as cold-blooded and premeditated as it could be. What pushed him to do it, none of us knew. Later on, when I put him in the squad car to take him to jail, I said, Mac, didn't you expect to get caught? And he said, not this quick. He showed no emotion or regret or fear was like he was talking about shooting a dog. Investigators called for an ambulance to be sent to the scene without sounding its siren, but reporters were not far behind. Before Mac was taken to jail, he, rec he recounted what had taken place the night before, while newsmen from the Odessa American and the Fort Worth Star-Telegram took down his story and six photographers jockeyed for the best angle. If we look at this over here, we can see... We can see some pictures um, of the crime scene and the footprints that he mentioned. On the drive out to the hunting lease, quotes, she was cheerful and chatted about how happy she was going to be when she was dead, Mac explained. He had parked his Jeep a short distance from the stock tank and he and Betty had sat there for a while and talked. Quote, she was happy, he recalled. She kept saying what it was going to be like in heaven. Then they had walked down to the pond together. Shivering, Betty had hurried back to the jeep to retrieve her duster. When she returned to the spot where Mac was waiting for her by the water, she took off her shoes. I just stood there with the gun, Mac told reporters. I said, give me a kiss to remember you by. She gave me a kiss and then said, thank you, Mac. I will always remember you for that. Then she said, now. 
I raised the gun barrel up and she took a hold of it with the back of her hand and held it up to her temple and then I pulled the trigger. She was dead like that. He snapped his fingers for emphasis. As word spread around Odisa that afternoon that Mac had been arrested for Betty's murder, the news was greeted with incredul incredulity. I just can't believe it, not Mac, a 16-year-old girl, shrieked as she collapsed in tears against the wall in, in the police station. We were shocked that one of our own, a popular football player who had been to our parties and had dated our friends, had committed a heinous crime. And as more information came out, we were shocked to learn that Mac, and a lot of other boys we knew, had been spending time with Betty after they had taken their girlfriends home. But despite the gruesomeness of the crime and the first-degree murder charges that were filed against him, Mac was not ostracised by his peers. He was still invited to parties at Carol McCutcheon's house and welcomed at Tommy's drive-in. Girls visited, girls visited him at home and boasted of knowing him. Rather than seeing Mac as a killer, many classmates acted as if something tragic that was beyond his control had befallen him. Quote, we were all supportive but we couldn't believe it, says a former try-high Y girl who asked not to be identified. We figured that if Mac did it, then there had to be good reason. After the arrest, the gossip centred less on Mac than it did on Betty. Quote, she was seen as a... I'm not going to say that word. And a diab diabolical manipulator, says Shelton Williams. My father overheard a customer at his car wash say, everyone knew that girl was no good. She tricks that boy into killing her. Betty's classmates in Winterset, which was cancelled after the news of Mac's arrest. Not, not cancelled after the news of... Of Betty's death. No, 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 no. Cancelled after the news of Mac's arrest. Not cancelled after the news that Betty was ooh, Betty was initially missing. No. Only after Mac was arrested. Puzzled over her intentions on the last night of her life. Has she really wanted to die, or was she still hoping somehow to win Mac back? Quote. I think Betty trapped herself in a real-life drama of her own making, says Dixon Bowles. She was ad-libbing all the way and it spun out of her control. I remember a teacher taking me aside afterwards and asking me, was Betty pregnant? And I said, no, I wish it were that simple. It was a game of chicken and she never backed out. So this would be a note or a letter from Betty. As we know, she likes to, she likes to write letters and notes. Um, so this was dated March 20th, 1961, which I believe, that must have been the day, that was the day that she um, was murdered. On all accounts, this was her, f her last message. Um, and we're going to have the honour of reading this now. I want everyone to know that what I'm about to do in no way implicates anyone else. I say this to make sure that no one blames, blame, that no blame falls on anyone other than myself. I have depressing problems that concern, for the most part, myself. I'm waging a war within myself, a war to find the true me. I fear that I'm losing the battle. So rather than admit defeat, I'm going to beat a quick retreat into the no man's land of death. As I have only the will and not the fortitude necessary, a friend of mine, seeing how great is my torment, has graciously consented to look after the details. His name is Mac Herring, and I pray that he will not have to suffer for what he is doing for my sake. I take upon myself all blame, if there is lies, on me alone. For there it lies on me alone. Betty Williams. When the state of Texas versus John McHerring got underway on February 20th, 1962, a guilty verdict seemed to be an all but forgotten conclusion. Mac's own confession painted a picture of a methodically planned murder. Before driving Betty half an hour out of town and shooting her point blank in the head, 
He had, by his own admission, procured lead weights, rope, shotgun shells, and even a miner's helmet to light his way so he could submerge her body in the stock tank. In the presence of Lawman, he had shown little emotion for his victim. While in custody, Mike reportedly told a deputy sheriff, quote, I feel toward her like a cat dying in a muddy street in the rain. It looked to most people like a case that was impossible for the defendant to win, says writer Larry King, who had left Midland a decade earlier but still followed the case. I mean, the defendant had admitted he kissed the girl, then blew her away, weighted her body, and buried it in the pond. What else did the state need? So King was confounded when his good friend Warren Burnett, an Odessa defense attorney, decided to take the case. I asked Burnett why, and he said, Church, church ain't over till they sing. Now, um, I am going to kind of skip over the backstory of Burnett, because I don't feel like he is uh, super relevant right now. Um, but what he just says is that he is very good at what he does. Um, he's very good with charisma and... Um, it says that no jury has ever sent a client of his to prison. In the kiss and kill case, he hatched a plan that he hoped to prevent Mac from ever standing trial for murder, using a defence strategy that had never, to anyone's recollection, been used before. Under Texas law, if jurors found the defendant temporarily insane, that is, insane only when he committed the crime, he would walk free. Citing this statute, Burnett argued before District Court Judge G.C. Olson, who we know there was actually a... Um, case filed against uh, this, uh, the Honourable G.C. Olsen, that before any trial was to take place, jurors should first have to evaluate Mac's sanity at the time he pulled the trigger. If they determined that he had been temporarily insane, he should not have to stand trial for murder. Burnett's line of reasoning flouted uh, legal precedent. Sanity hearings are supposed to take up only the narrow question of whether, def whether a defendant is competent to stand trial. But to the astonishment of courthouse observers and over the strenuous objections of the pro prosecution, Judge Olson granted Burnett's motion for the pretrial hearing. Jurors would not determine Mac's guilt or innocence, they would only render a decision as to whether he had been insane at the time of the crime. Mac, in effect, would have a chance at acquittal before his murder trial had even begun. When flummoxed, prosecutors requested a 24-hour delay to prepare their case. Burnett expressed his surprise, quote, since insanity is the only possible explanation for this tragedy. Because the murder had occurred just across the Exeter County line, the hearing took place in Kermit, an oil patch town 45 miles west of Odessa, the smell of petroleum hung in the air. The jury pool was the largest that had ever, ever been called in Winkler County. The last murder to get much attention, a stabbing at a hotel in Wink, had happened in 1947. Teenagers filled many of the 160 seats in Judge Olson's courtroom, at times spilling over into the aisle and out the door. It was a carnival, says former Winkler County clerk Virginia Healy. The defendant was a good-looking boy and all these clean-cut girls came, came out from Odessa to ooh and ah over him. Nicknamed Max Girls, they made up only a fraction of the spectators whose sympathies were with the defendant. Betty's parents, lost in their grief, were her only visible supporters. Her father occasionally leaned forward so as not to miss a word of testimony, dabbing at his eyes with a white handkerchief. Mac sat behind the defence table in a dark suit, his head often bowed. The strain of the proceedings sometimes showed as when he uh, laid his head in his hands during jury selection, otherwise he was impassive. Arguing for the state was 32-year-old district attorney Dan Sullivan, an earnest, if not particularly seasoned lawyer, who was out of his depth. In his 16 months in office, 
he'd prosecuted mostly oil-filled theft cases and DWIs. It was Burnett, with the sleeves of his suit jacket pushed up to his elbows, who commanded the courtroom. Because the burden of proof fell on Burnett to prove that Mac was insane when he pulled the trigger, the hearing began not with the witnesses for the state, but for the defence. Which, by the way, if you're unfamiliar with court proceedings, hearings, nine times out of ten will begin with the prosecution's state uh, case. The first person Burnett called to the stand was Mac's father, O.H. Herring, who told the jury that on the day of his son's arrest, Mac had handed him a letter Betty had written. The letter, which the Texas Department of Public Safety had authenticated and which Mr. Herring read to the jury, held that Betty alone was to blame for her death. Quote, you might say she'd become a witness for the defense, Burnett quipped. Shut up, Burnett. Nine character witnesses, including Odisa High's head football coach, Lacey Turner, spoke on Mac's behalf. Many of them concurred that Mac must have been temporarily insane at the time of the crime. Three classmates testified that Betty had also asked them to kill her. But the most compelling testimony came from Marvin Grice, an Odisa psychiatrist who had examined Mac three days after the murder. The former football player had been, quote, dethroned of his reasoning by Betty's pleading. Grice said, and in his estimation, had become temporarily insane when he put the shotgun to his he to her head. Quote, he became so mixed up and so sick that he felt pulling the trigger was what he should do for her, Grice testified. He was deprived of the power of applying logic. However, the effects of this gross stress reaction were temporary. He can be trusted to lead a normal life, Grice assured the jury. Sullivan, who was the prosecution, put on the best case that he could, uh, that he could, given the extraordinary limitations he was working with. Judge Olson had denied his motion to have Mac evaluated by a psychiatrist for the state, having agreed with Burnett that the defense, defendant's current state of mind was irrelevant. Sullivan tried to establish jealousy as a motive by calling the stand Bill Rose, the popular football player whom, Petty had, whom Betty had parked with when she was dating Mac. But Bill testified that he had spurned Betty's advances when they had parked in the secluded spot. Besides, Bill maintains the incident had not had much of an effect on Mac. Quote, We talked a while and agreed our friendship was more valuable than an argument about her, Bill testified. We shook hands and forgot about the whole thing. Sullivan pushed on, focusing on classmate Howard Sellers' comments that Betty's dramatic note attempting to exonerate Mac had been, quote, conceived in a joking atmosphere. The district attorney could not establish a motive. Quote, the, the entire proceeding was a perversion of the law, says Sullivan, who was still a practicing lawyer in the nearby town of Andrews. Quote, the jury never heard the indictment read or learned how the crime was committed. None of the facts of the case came out. Moments after Sullivan rested his case, Burnett rose from his seat and thundered across the crowded courtroom. Quote, stand up, Mac Herring. Go around and take the witness chair. It appeared that Burnett was calling his client to the stands for rebuttal, but, not, but no sooner had Mac been sworn in than Burnett, for further dramatic effects, roared, Pass the witness. Answer the questions they have for you, lad. If he had hoped to throw the prosecution off balance, he had succeeded, though Sullivan tried to make the most of the opportunity. In his cross-examination, the district attorney pressed Mac to explain at what moment exactly he decided to kill Betty. Quote, I don't know, Mac stammered. I can't remember. I can't explain. He had difficulty understanding it all himself, he told the jury in a halting voice. I have stayed awake at night trying to think so I could explain it to other people, he said. Sometimes now I think it was a dream, sometimes I think it was real, sometimes I think I'm watching someone else. As he sat in the witness chair, he appeared solemn and contrite. Though other classmates had believed that Betty was joking when she had asked them to kill her, 
Mac maintained that her pleas had a profound effect on him. Betty had, quote, talked about heaven a lot, he said, and had made it appear like a place you could reach out and touch. He explains that on the night he killed her, he had believed he was doing the right thing. In retrospect, he told the jury, I know that everything about it was wrong. Oh god, I know, I know exact, this next sentence is going to piss us all off. I know that for a fact. After 11 hours of deliberation, during which jurors asked that Grice's expert testimony be read back to them, they determined that Mac had, in fact, been temporarily insane on the night of the murder. Upon hearing the verdict, Mac slumped into his chair and wept, while friends and classmates rushed to his side to embrace him. Betty's parents slipped through the exuberant crowd and out of the courtroom before reporters could reach them for comment. I cannot imagine... Your child has been murdered by somebody else. And when they are found temporarily insane, before a trial could even properly take place, the entire courtroom celebrates. I cannot imagine. I cannot imagine the pain, the anger the emotions that they must have gone through in those moments. We can, I can only be thankful that Betty's parents had one another through these times. Okay. While Burnett had been careful not to malign Betty's character during the hearing, some details of the case, like her sneaking out of her house in a night clothes to meet, to meet Ike Nail, had tarred her as a loose, immoral girl. Quote, I overheard a juror talking about Betty, says Hazel Lockley, the wife of a highway patrolman who'd been struck by Mac's aloofness at the crime scene. I remember her saying in a very ugly way, that girl was nothing. To some observers, it seemed as if Betty's trans transgressions had eclipsed those of the teenager who'd killed her. Nobody talked about how Mac could have said no, observes Sandra Schofield. Yes, Sandra! who graduated from the Odessa High a year before the murder. Betty had enlisted him, this worthy young man, to do what she didn't have the courage to do herself. She had, quote, roped him into doing it. So she became not the victim, but the villain. No, I don't agree with that at all. I agree with Sandra. Mac, you could have said no. Saturn says, I couldn't imagine someone celebrating my child's killer getting off lightly. I think I'd commit a true crime there and then. I get it. Sullivan did, which is the prosecution, um, appealed the verdict to the Texas Supreme Court on the grounds that Judge Olson did not have the authority to grant a hearing that only evaluated Mac's sanity at the time of the crime. We do have the case open here. On June 27th, 1962, the court sided with Sullivan, vacating the judgment and ordering a new trial. What advantage he gained in being allowed to present his evidence was negated by Burnett's skill and showmanship. Because of the intense publicity, the second trial was moved nearly 600 miles away to Beaumont. Sam says, thank you, Sandra, for being the only reasonable person at Betty's school, apparently. Yeah, I agree. Burnett relied on his old playbook. He put Grice back on the stand and packed the courtroom with teammates, teachers, parents, and community leaders who took the stand to extol his client's virtues. Mac had been a stellar student, one of his teachers told the jury and added, I've never known a more brilliant mind. His football coach testified that Mac had never used profanity. 
Howard Sellis said that Mac was, quote, his idol and personified everything that was good. I'm sorry, but a good person would not shoot somebody. A good person would not, even when asked to, would not shoot somebody in the head. No, 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 no. Mm -mm. I do hate this. In an impassioned closing argument that Burnett delivered before a standing room only crowd, he hammered home the fact that nearly two years after Betty's murder, the prosecution had still not established a motive. Quote, does the evidence show any possible explanation? He challenged the jury. Until some evidence is brought to show the psychiatrists were wrong, I'd be inclined to believe them. Jurors agreed, and 12 days before Christmas, they found Mac not guilty by reason of insanity. A smattering of applause broke out in the courtroom when the verdict was announced, and once again, Mac was mobbed by jubilant supporters. A few glad observers, including the wife of a Baptist minister who sat on the jury, looked on with tears in their eyes. Mac, who had once worried aloud to a reporter that he would be sent to the electric chair, was a free man. Okay, here seems to be another letter or notes, I'm presuming from Betty. Let's go through him. To whom it may concern, the time has come to leave, and as I prepare to go, and it's difficult to write the words that will explain. I love you, Dick, for all that you have meant to me. You've been the greatest friend I could have ever asked for. Here's to all the stories we never wrote. Maybe it's better that way. They'll never be exposed to the critics or the public. I hope our story about Jerry makes him. Think of me once in a while and know that I'm glad we met. Gail, I'm sorry about Indiana, but I hope you'll understand. Here's hoping you'll always have the best, because you're one of the best. I find the tears cloud in my eyes as I say goodbye to those I love. May they forgive me. Mr. Herring, you're a wonderful man. So many times I've wanted to tell you how much I appreciate you. I'm sorry I have to tell you like this. Memories, so many memories to come back and cloud my mind. Memories that I'll carry through all eternity. Now I just really quickly want to um, point out that throughout this entire article, not once did the author mention her friend Dick or... Or Gail. Not once. I wonder why. Okay. Okay, we're almost towards the end, guys. Anyone who had suffered the unrelenting scrutiny that Mac had, the Odessa American alone ran nearly two dozen front-page stories on the case, might have pulled up stakes and started a new life somewhere else. But Mac chose to stay. After attending Texas Tech University, where he was once introduced to a class as the famous Mac Herring, he returned home to the town that never turned its back on him. He made a quiet life for himself, and he steered clear out of trouble with the law. He married and divorced twice. He worked as a dock foreman at a chemical company, a carpenter, a welder, and for at least the past 25 years as an electrician. Sorry if I don't seem very enthusiastic about Mac's story after the, after the trial. I just don't give a shit. Not about him. Few of his former classmates still see him. Most have moved away or fallen out of touch. The blooms and busts of the oil patch have brought new people to Odessa and taken others away. Mac had faded into the background. It says here that Mac was decli declined to uh, be interviewed for this article. Um, I think this is the final bits. This has not been a free ride for Max as his childhood friend Larry Francel. It's ruined two lives, one's dead, one's still alive. And because many people in town would prefer never to hear the words kiss and kill again, the case still touches a nerve. I suspect most of us would rather let the things stay in the past. One Odessa High School alumna wrote me in an email. There was already enough pain in 61, why dredge up again? 
but others refuse to forget. I don't take well to the fact that people don't think that this is an important story, says Shelton Williams, who carried a photograph of his cousin in his wallet for 35 years after the murder. I don't believe that Betty ever wanted to die. In the Williams family, Grandoy's threats and melodramatic bids for attention had not been unique to Betty. When her father lived with my parents, he used to threaten to kill himself in the middle of the night, says Shelton. My mother would sit up and try to talk him out of it until he did it one too many times, then she told him to just go ahead and do it, which he didn't. When Betty said that life wasn't worth living without Mac, I understood it within the context of her family. A murder and the verdicts that followed had stripped away any of his preconceptions about fairness and justice. No other event in my life impacted me the way this did, he says. Everything looked different to me afterwards. Betty had been murdered, and everyone wanted to sweep it under the rug and make it go away. It's interesting to note that we don't find out anything more about Betty's family bar the cousin, but that does bring us to the end of that article. Let me know what you thought of that case. I know it was very rough, very rough case, especially towards the end. The facts alone that both of her parents passed away with no true justice being found. Feeling that the entire town is against them. I cannot imagine. And that's everything that we have for you in this case. Make sure to subscribe to this channel and hit that bell icon so you can be notified every single time I post a brand new true crime video just like this one. You can find my Twitter and Instagram in the description down below, along with my Twitch channel in the pinned comments and at the top of the description. And with all that being said, I'll see you in the next case.